Healthy Hacker, episode 19. Welcome to The Healthy Hacker, where we talk about programming, puzzles, memory fitness, diet, and everything else that you, a healthy hacker, find interesting. I'm Chris Hunt, and this week, I'm venturing into the other category when it comes to topics, because this has nothing to do with programming, puzzles, memory, fitness, or diet. I'm going to talk about photography, and specifically, exposure. See, once upon a time, many years ago, I was a professional photographer and I shot sports, weddings, and anything else that people would pay me to photograph. Nowadays, though, I don't do that anymore. I program, but I still walk around with these silly-looking, old-fashioned film cameras and take pictures of random people on the street because it's fun. Well, tis the season, it's the month of December, and people are buying each other new cameras, and because I'm known as the photo guy, I get lots of questions about what camera should I buy, what lenses should I buy, how do I use my camera? Well, often I can't recommend a specific camera because it really doesn't matter What camera you buy if you understand how exposure works and the basics of getting the exact picture that you're looking for. Once you understand the basic concepts of photography, you will know exactly what camera you want because you'll know what you're looking for. So today I'm going to teach you everything you need to know to use any camera in the world because they're all the same. We're going to talk about film speed, shutter speed, and aperture. Before we get into that though, let's do the workout of the week. The workout of the week is a section where I like to take a workout that I've done recently or seen recently or someone's told me about and I share it with you and hopefully sometime this next week or in the future, you get to try this out as well. So the workout we're going to do today is a CrossFit workout called Angie. And the reason this workout has a name is because it's famous for being a pain in the butt. Every named workout in CrossFit is notoriously difficult to do. So this workout is called Angie, and it's probably going to take you anywhere from 15 minutes to an hour to maybe two hours, depending on how much experience you have with these exercises. The way Angie works is you start a stopwatch and do 100 pull-ups, 100 push-ups, 100 sit-ups, and 100 air squats. Holy smokes. So depending on how comfortable you are with pull-ups and push-ups and sit-ups and air squats, it's going to drastically affect your time. But almost everybody in the world can do this workout. It'll just take some people a very long time to do it, which is totally fine if you want to have a good workout. So for each of these exercises, you can visit the show notes at healthyhacker.com slash 19, and I put some videos in there to show you how to do them, but I'm going to explain them briefly just in case you're unfamiliar. So a pull-up, you grab a bar and you pull your chin above the bar, and then you come back down again. Now, if you can't do a pull-up at all, then this is going to be a showstopper for you, but there are some modifications you can do to make it easier. So instead of doing a pull-up, pulling your chin up above a bar, instead find a bar that's a little lower, maybe your hip waist or maybe right above your hip and hang down from that. So your feet are touching the ground. Your back is not quite parallel with the ground. It's probably like a 45 degree angle or so, but you're hanging down from your arms and you're just pulling your chest up to the bar from that hang. 
That's going to work a lot of the same muscles, but you don't have to pull up all your body weight. And that's a good progression. Once you can do a whole bunch of those, then you might be able to move to do a normal pull-up. And then maybe someday you can do Angie with 100 actual pull-ups. The next exercise in the workout is a push-up. We all know how to do a push-up. You bring your chest to the ground and then push your chest up. So you're in that plank position, that flat position with your arms fully extended. If you can't do 100 push-ups in a day, you know, in a reasonable amount of time, then you can modify this exercise by putting your knees on the ground instead of your feet. That's going to make it a little bit easier. And finally, the last two exercises, sit-ups and air squats, these don't really need any modifications because there's not a lot of heavy weight going on here. A sit-up is just putting your feet flat on the ground, bringing your back down to the ground, and then bringing your chest up and touching your toes. So you're sitting up, just like it sounds. And the air squat is doing a squat with no weight whatsoever, squatting with just the air. So good luck. I'm not going to lie. This workout is a pain, but it's also really fun once you've finished. And now it's time to transform yourself into a photography master. If you don't already know how to use a camera and you don't understand, you don't even know what the word exposure means, I guarantee you will know both of those things by the end of this episode. And you'll probably know more than almost anybody else you know. And people are going to start asking you for camera advice and what lens should I buy and how do I take this kind of picture? Because mastering exposure and understanding the three variables that control exposure, film speed, shutter speed, and aperture size, those are the three things you need to know. Once you've mastered those, you can take any picture you want on any camera you want, and you don't need to read any manuals, you don't need to ask any questions, because every single camera operates exactly the same way. From those giant, large format cameras, which are those things that you throw the curtain over your head, you know, and you got that big camera that weighs like hundreds of pounds, to those medium format cameras like the Rolleiflex or the Hasselblad or uh, even the smaller film cameras like, you know, your grandpa's SLR or even your friend's $8,000 digital SLR or your camera phone. They all work the same way and the exposure of the image is controlled with the film speed, the shutter speed, and the aperture size. And each of those give you a little different creative control on how the image looks and knowing how to control those lets you use any camera in the world. So what is exposure? When people say exposure, when they're talking about photography, what are they talking about? Well, it's just like it sounds. The exposure of an image is the amount of light that the film is exposed to. And in this day and age, a lot of people use digital cameras. It's the same thing. It's the amount of light that the digital sensor is exposed to. Film and digital are exactly the same when it comes to photography. So I'm going to use those interchangeably because it doesn't matter. If you can take a picture on a digital camera and you know how it works, you can pick up a film camera and do the exact same thing. It's not any easier. It's not any more difficult. Same stuff. So let's say you're at like a friend's birthday party and it's 8 o'clock at night. The sun's down. It's dark. You're at a restaurant and now everybody's singing happy birthday. So you're going to want to take a picture, right? You bust out your camera phone or your big fancy DSLR and boop, you take a picture. But when you look at the picture, you see it's totally dark. You can't see anyone's face. That means the image is underexposed. The sensor did not get enough light to make it bright enough for you to actually see what's going on in the picture. So when people say an image is underexposed, that's what they mean. There wasn't enough light captured to make the image look good. On the flip side of that, an image can also be 
overexposed. Like if you're in a car and maybe you take a picture outside the window or something like that, sometimes you might see it's just totally white. You can't see what you were looking at. You know, you can't see the details of the trees or the ground. You just see this bright white window. Or maybe you have a friend who's standing next to the window, and so you try to take a little portrait of your friend, and their face is just totally blown out. It has no detail in it. It's like a solid white color. There's no detail. You can't see their eyes. You can't see anything. That image is overexposed. There's too much light that got into the sensor, and now we can't see any detail. There's no such thing as the correct exposure for an image, but most of the time when we take a picture, we want it to look kind of like it looked in real life, right? We want the skin tones to look good. We want to be able to see whites and blacks and grays and all the colors. We want it to look kind of like it did in real life. That's our goal. That's the, the quote, correct exposure. Now you can, of course, make an image darker or lighter to be creative, but your goal nine times out of 10 is going to be just to have it look normal. So how do you know how much light you need to get the correct exposure? For that, you need a light meter. Now, back in the day with these super old cameras, you might recall seeing maybe they have this little thing that they hold up in your face and press a button, right? That's a light meter. That's going to tell them exactly how much light they need to expose their film for to get a good exposure. With a DSLR or some film cameras that have built-in light meters, you don't need to do that. You don't need to walk across the room and hold up a light meter to someone's face to determine how much light you need. What digital cameras do today is they're just constantly measuring the light that the lens is seeing, and they try to take that whole scene and just average it out to like a medium gray color. Because it turns out that most pictures we take if you were to average all the stuff that's in the frame, it's going to be like an 18% or 12 or 13% medium gray color. So the camera just pays attention to what you're pointing at and then adjusts the exposure based on whatever it is you're about to take a picture of. If you point it out a window, it's going to expose correctly for that. If you point it in a dark room, it's going to try to expose correctly for that. And this is how your iPhone works by default. You can just press the button, it'll take a picture, and most of the time it looks pretty good. You can even grab one of the giant DSLRs and they have automatic modes. And most people use their cameras in these automatic modes. And you just press the button and it takes a picture and the camera sets the exposure based on what it thinks it needs to take that picture. And the only three variables that it changes to take that picture for you is the film speed, the shutter speed, and the aperture size. The same three variables that we're going to learn how to use to control the exposure ourselves. So let's talk about film speed. Now, obviously, digital cameras don't have film anymore. You don't have to load film in the camera. But the terminology has stayed the same since we've used to shoot in film. And a lot of people today still shoot in film. I shoot in film because it's fun. So film speed is a little bit confusing of a name. It should actually be called maybe film sensitivity or something like that. But film speed often confuses people when they're first getting started because they might be thinking about the speed that the film moves or something. I don't know. But think of film speed as film sensitivity. This is a measurement of how sensitive the film is to light. So if we take one film and lay it out on a table, how long does it take that film to soak in the light? Some film will soak it in really, really fast in a fraction of a second. Other film will take several seconds to soak up light and capture that image. It's the same with digital sensors. The way that we measure film sensitivity or film speed is called an ISO, and that stands for International Standards Organization. It's just a standard measurement 
of light sensitivity. And usually when you look at a roll of film or you look at your digital camera and look at ISO, you're going to see ratings of 100, 200, 400, 800, 1600. These are all different sensitivity levels that you can set your film to. And the higher that number, the more sensitive that film is going to be to light. An ISO 200 film is going to be twice as sensitive as an ISO 100 film. An ISO 400 film is going to be twice as sensitive to light as an ISO 200. An 800 is twice as sensitive as 416, twice as sensitive as 800, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's just like it sounds. So when you're using film, the way that it captures light is by taking these silver salts, these little chunks of silver, and putting them on the film. And then when those are exposed to light, those chunks of silver are what actually capture the light and expose the film. If we want the film to be more sensitive to light, then we use larger silver salts. So an ISO 1600 film is gonna have giant silver salts sitting on the film plane. Whereas like an ISO 100 film is gonna have teeny tiny ISO silver salts sitting on the film plane. It's gonna be less sensitive. So what that does, in addition to making the film more sensitive or less sensitive to light, it also creates film grain. You notice how when you look at an old photo or you look through a photo book or even movies that are made on film, you see grain in the picture. Some people really like that look. Well, the higher the ISO, the larger those silver salts on the film, the more prominent that grain is gonna be because it is that silver salt that causes the grain. So an ISO 100 film is usually gonna be a nice, clean, pretty image with not that much grain. It's gonna be very clear, very sharp, very bold. Whereas often an ISO 1600 or ISO 3200 film is gonna have a lot of grain. It's gonna be very grainy. Maybe you've seen some old photos that look just super grainy. That was probably shot on a higher ISO film. Well, this also applies to digital photography. We can't change our sensor. It's not like we have one digital sensor that's ISO 100, and then we take our sensor out and put another sensor in that's ISO 400, and then we can take that sensor out. No, digital cameras have one sensor. Your iPhone has one digital sensor. Your digital SLR camera has one sensor. Usually those sensors are calibrated to capture an image at ISO 100, and that's all they do. So when you change the ISO setting on a digital camera, what it's doing is it's capturing the image at ISO 100 and then boosting that image, doing digital processing on that image to get it up to the sensitivity that you've selected. So if I grab a digital camera and I take a picture at ISO 400, it's actually going to take the picture for me at ISO 100 and then boost the brightness of that image or the exposure of that image by a factor of four to get it up to ISO 400 where I told it I wanted to take the picture. So because of that, because it's doing this digital boosting, making it brighter, when you use a higher ISO on your digital camera, you'll see noise in the picture just like you did in film. Digital sensors obviously don't have silver salts creating grain on the image, right? But this digital boosting amplifies any noise that that sensor picks up. So you get the same kind of thing. You still get this grainy look when you choose a higher ISO on your camera. A lot of times this noise that a digital camera produces is horrible to look at. People do not like 
digital noise, whereas a film grain is kind of soothing and nice and random and beautiful. You know, people are very romantic about the noise that a film produces, but digital noise is nasty. So if you take a picture at a high ISO and see a bunch of noise in the picture, most of the time that noise is not very pleasant to look at. So when you're shooting on a film camera, it makes sense to choose whatever film that you want. Film gives you kind of a creative control. Some popular films out there are like Fuji 400H, which makes these nice blue-green colors when you take a picture outside. And then there's Kodak Portra 400, which is a relatively new film. It was first released in 2010, and it has nice, warm, natural skin tones. It's beautiful. And then there's Kodak Tri-X 400, which is a black and white film, and it's extremely popular. Probably every old black and white photo you've ever seen has been taken with Tri-X pretty much. It's, it's been out since 1950s. It's pretty amazing. And people still use this today as the number one black and white film. So when you're shooting film, it makes sense to choose your film not only by the speed, but by the color you want to see in the images. When you're shooting digital, though, film speed isn't really a creative thing. You always want your film speed to be as low as possible because digital noise looks like garbage. So you can forget everything I said about film speed and just remember, make your film speed as low as you possibly can when taking a picture because you don't want digital noise in your image. Even if you want to import your photo into your computer later and do some processing on it and make it look all vintage-y, you could probably add way better noise on your computer than the nasty digital noise that will appear if you use a high ISO. So on your film camera, choose a film that has the look you're going for. On your digital camera, keep the ISO as low as possible unless you need to increase it because you need it to be more sensitive to light. So let's move on now to the next thing that you need to know how to control to get perfect exposure, shutter speed. So film is sitting in the back of the camera. It's just hanging out. It's in a dark room waiting for you to put a picture on it. Well, right in front of that film plane or that digital sensor is a black felt door, and that's called the shutter. And it's just like you might imagine a door. It opens and it closes, and that's all it does. While the shutter is closed, the film is in complete darkness. It sees no light whatsoever. When the shutter is open, it sees all the light, and that's when the actual picture is being taken. So shutter speed is the speed that that door opens and closes. And shutter speeds are represented in fractions of a second. So when you're looking at a shutter speed dial or you're looking at your camera and it's telling you a shutter speed, you're usually going to see 1 over 50 or 1 over 100 or 1 over 200. That's saying that the shutter is going to be open for 1 50th of a second or 1 100th of a second or 1 200th of a second. And just like the film speed, these are usually in powers of two. So if the shutter is open for 1 100th of a second, it's going to let in half as much light as 1 50th of a second. And that makes sense, right? Because if the shutter's open half the amount of time, like 1 100th of a second is half the amount of time as 1 50th of a second. If it's open half the amount of time, it's going to let in half the amount of light. So if I take a picture at 1 50th of a second and it's way too bright, everything is white, I can't see any detail, oh my goodness, it's overexposed. Then if I increase my shutter speed to one over 100, it's going to decrease the amount of light that the sensor or film sees by one half and now my image is gonna be darker. I can increase it to one 200th of a second and now it's gonna be twice as dark again. 
So you can control that shutter speed to control your exposure. Now the shutter speed can also be used for creativity or to get a specific look in your photo. If you use a slow shutter, like if I'm taking a picture and I just open the shutter for four seconds, the film is gonna see everything that happens in that four seconds. So if I set the camera on the table and I open the shutter and I leave it there for four seconds and then I walk around in front of the camera, when we look at the picture, I'm gonna be this blurry mess that moves around in the frame because the film saw all of that motion while the shutter was open. It saw me on the left side of the frame, it saw me walking, it saw me on the right side of the frame. All that motion was captured because the shutter was open so long. You might have seen pictures of like a waterfall and it's this beautiful, silky, smooth, flowy look to the water. That was achieved by using a slow shutter. They left the shutter open for maybe one-fifth of a second or one-twentieth of a second, and they captured all the motion that happened in the water during that time frame. Now, for most people who aren't that familiar with how a camera works, a slow shutter also bites them in the butt sometimes because they'll be in a dark environment, like, say, a birthday party at a restaurant, and they're taking a picture of people blowing out candles, and then they look at their picture when they get done, and everything's blurry. There's nothing sharp at all in the photo. And the reason that happens is because it was so dark in the room, your camera decided to leave the shutter open for a pretty long period of time so it can let in enough light to get the correct exposure. And during that period of time when the shutter was open, your hand was bouncing around in space as you were taking the picture. Because we can't hold our hands perfectly still, right? We're breathing, living creatures. We can't just like lock our arm in solid. So even though you don't see your hand moving, if you take a picture at a slow shutter speed, everything in the frame is gonna be blurry because you can't possibly hold still for that long period of time. So a slow shutter speed can be nice when you're trying to capture motion in the frame, but you never want to be holding the camera when you do this because you will not be able to hold still enough to keep the stuff you want to be sharp, sharp. Now, the other way you can be creative with a shutter is let's say you're at a football game and you want to take pictures of the football players jumping up in the air and snagging a football and you just want to freeze that moment, right? They're going for a touchdown. They got to jump two feet in the air, grab this football, and you just want to totally freeze that touchdown catch mid-air and have it be super sharp. Well, for that, you can't use a slow shutter, right? Because you would get the full motion of them leaving the ground and then coming back onto the ground and it'd be kind of a blurry, nasty thing to look at. So you use a high shutter speed to freeze that moment in time. And the higher shutter speed you choose, the more you'll be able to freeze that image. So usually when I do sports, I'm aiming for at least one over 500th of a second, at least. Ideally, it would be more than that, but if you're in dark environments, sometimes you need to leave the shutter open a little bit longer because there's just not enough light in the room to take the picture. So really, the only things you need to know about a shutter speed, use a slow shutter speed if you wanna capture motion in the frame, and remember never to hold the camera when you're using a slow shutter speed, or use a fast shutter speed if you wanna freeze motion, like sports. So now let's talk about aperture size. This is the third variable that affects exposure. Remember, we have our film or our digital sensor in the back of the camera, then right in front of that is a door that opens and closes. That's our shutter. The longer that door is open, the more light 
that's going to hit that film. Well, right in front of that door now, inside of the lens, is what's called an aperture. And the aperture is just a hole. It's the hole that all the light comes through. It's a circle. It's usually made of several blades, and those blades go in and out. You could find nice videos of this stuff online if you want to see what an aperture looks like. You could also just grab a lens and look through it. If you have a lens sitting on the table or you know somebody that has a lens or even your camera that has a lens built into it and you can't remove the lens, if you look right into the lens, you'll see a little set of blades that open and close. And they'll probably even be moving in and out if you try to focus the camera and adjust the exposure while you're looking at the camera. You'll see that aperture blades go open and close, and it's kind of fun to look at. Well, that aperture, that hole, is where all of the light comes through that passes through the shutter. So if we were to close that aperture all the way, then opening up the shutter would still not expose the film. There'd still be no light hitting the film or the digital sensor. All light passes through the aperture, and the size of that aperture affects how much light makes it to the shutter. A small aperture is gonna let in much less light than a large aperture, right? It makes sense. A bigger hole is gonna let in more light. Now the aperture size, the actual size of that hole that all the light goes through, is never actually referred to directly when you're taking a picture. Instead, what people refer to is the ratio of the size of the lens and the size of that aperture hole. Now you don't even need to know this stuff. I'm just explaining it so that the aperture numbers make sense. So if you were to look at a camera right now or go to some photography club and start talking about photography, people are gonna refer to the aperture in f-stops. And an f-stop is just a measurement of the aperture size. And usually it's a number like 1.4 or 2 or 2.8 or 4 or 5.6 or 8 or 11, et cetera, et cetera. It goes up, it goes down. It's a measurement of the size of the aperture. And the way those numbers are calculated is you take the size of the lens, and if you look at the lens, it's gonna tell you the size, but let's say we have a 100 millimeter lens, and then you take the diameter of the aperture. So if you were to take a teeny tiny little measuring stick and stick it inside your lens and measure the diameter of your aperture, so let's say our aperture has a diameter of 25 millimeters, then you can calculate the f-stop by taking the diameter of our aperture, which is 25 millimeters, and dividing that by the size of the lens, which is 100 millimeters. So 25 divided by 100, which is one divided by four. So we would say this lens is using an f-stop of four. We just drop the one over. Super confusing. I mean, holy smokes, what are people thinking? So when you look at these f-stop numbers, when you're looking at a lens and you're choosing an aperture and it says 2, 2.8, 4, 5.6, 8, what those numbers actually are is 1 over 2, 1 over 2.8, 1 over 4, 1 over 5.6. They're fractions. So an f-stop of 2.8 is actually larger than an f-stop of 5.6. It's a smaller number, but because they're fractions, it's going to be a larger hole in the lens. So if we set our camera for f2.8, the diameter of that aperture is gonna be twice as large at f2.8 than it will be at f4, the next f-stop. So if that isn't confusing enough, 
let me explain why people even care about the aperture size. Now, the aperture can actually be used for creativity. It's not like the shutter speed where we choose amount of time that it's open and closed. The aperture is always open, but the cool thing about the aperture is it controls our depth of field or it controls how much is in focus. The larger the aperture size, the bigger that hole in the lens the smaller the depth of field is going to be. So if you've seen like a portrait or something, a beautiful portrait, and you look and notice, oh man, their eyes are perfectly sharp, but the background is totally blurred out. I can't see anything behind them. There's this wonderful isolation where they're just like popping out of the picture, right? The way that's achieved is by using a large aperture. The larger the aperture, the smaller the depth of field, meaning the smaller the area that's in focus. So if I focus on somebody's eyeball and I have a really big aperture, then all the stuff that's behind their eyeball is going to be out of focus. It's going to be blurry. And all the stuff that's in front of their eyeball is also going to be blurry. So sometimes you might even take a picture and somebody's nose is blurry, but their eyeball is sharp because you have such a small depth of field, a shallow depth of field. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, if you choose a small aperture size, a teeny tiny hole in the front of the lens, then everything is gonna be in focus or more things are gonna be in focus. So if you're taking a landscape, for example, and you want this beautiful fence in the foreground to be sharp and you want the mountains that are miles away to be sharp, then you're gonna use a smaller aperture so all that stuff is in focus. You don't want any kind of blurring happening in the frame. You want everything to be sharp. Now with a really small camera, like our iPhones, for example, we don't really have that much of a choice. Our apertures on there are not very big. They're teeny tiny holes. That's why when you take a picture with your iPhone, most of the time, everything is going to be sharp. It's hard to get this really beautiful, creamy, blurry background when you take a picture of your friend with your iPhone because the aperture is just so darn teeny. You can't make it big enough to get that shallow depth of field. So this is one of the reasons why people like to use these giant cameras so they can have these big lenses with these large apertures and create all these beautiful, blurry, isolating pictures. That's one of the reasons why people do that. To summarize the aperture, it is the hole that's in front of the shutter. The larger that hole is, the more light that's gonna get in to the sensor. And the larger that hole is, the shallower your depth of field is gonna be, so you can create these nice blurry backgrounds. If you wanna take a picture of a landscape and you want more stuff to be in focus, use a small aperture so that you get more stuff in focus. If you want isolation, use a large aperture. When you're looking at the camera and you see f-stop numbers like two, 2.8, four, 5.6, remember that those numbers are fractions. It's actually one over two, one over 2.8, one over four, etc. So when the number gets bigger, the f-stop gets bigger, that actually means the aperture size is getting smaller because one over 11 is a smaller hole than one over two, less light. So now you know all three of the things that you need to know to use any camera in the world and get exactly the picture you're looking for. Remember, we have film speed, which is the sensitivity of the film to light. If you're using a digital camera, you wanna keep that film speed as low as possible. In front of the film, we have the shutter, 
which is the door that opens and closes, the longer we leave that door open, the more motion and blur we're gonna capture. If we open and close that door really fast, use a high shutter speed, then we can freeze motion in the frame, and then we have aperture, which we just talked about, that lets you control the depth of field in the image, or how much stuff is gonna be in focus. So I've got two scenarios that we can work through here just to test our understanding of how to use these things. So let's say we are at a football game. Okay, and I've got my fancy light meter. Maybe I use the meter on my camera. Maybe I use the one that I took out of my pocket and I press my button and I say, give me some settings for correct exposure, okay? If I look at my light meter or I look at the back of the camera, it's gonna tell me in this light, you're gonna wanna use ISO 100. You're gonna wanna use a shutter speed of one over 125 and you're gonna wanna use an f-stop of 5.6 and that's gonna give you correct exposure. Sweet. So I dial in those settings and I take the picture. Well, now I look at the back of the camera and all I see is blurry football players. These guys are running across the field and I'm not freezing the motion. So what do we want to do when we freeze motion? We want to increase the shutter speed, right? We want to freeze the motion. So remember the settings that our light meter suggested was ISO 100, an f-stop of 5.6, and a shutter speed of 1 over 125. So let's say we increase the shutter speed from 1 over 125 now because we want a sharp image of people in motion. So we increase it from 1 over 125 to 1 over 500. That's a factor of 4. We did two clicks. We went from 1 over 125 to 1 over 250 to 1 over 500. So because we increased our shutter speed now from 1 over 125 to 1 over 500, we're now letting in one-fourth the amount of light into our camera. So if we were to just take the picture now and leave all our other settings how they were, the image would be too dark because we're no longer leaving the shutter open long enough to let in enough light to take a good picture. So we can adjust our other two variables, our ISO and our aperture, to get the exposure back where it needs to be. So an easy way to do this on a digital camera, maybe we just turn the ISO up from ISO 100 to ISO 400. So remember, we increased our shutter speed by a factor of four, so now we're also going to increase our ISO or our film sensitivity by a factor of four as well. So now we can take the picture and boom, it's perfect. Ta-da, everybody's sharp, exposure looks amazing. Now let's say we don't want to increase our ISO to ISO 400 because it introduces noise and we don't want to see this nasty noise in our photo, right? So instead of doing that, we can make our aperture bigger to let in more light and stick with ISO 100. So we can move our aperture two clicks over to a larger aperture size. So we can go from f5.6 to f4 to f2.8. So then our final settings would be ISO 100 at f2.8 and a shutter speed of 1 500th of a second. That is equivalent exposure-wise to what we had our camera set to in the beginning. Our sensor still seeing the exact same amount of light, but now our shutter is open for a shorter period of time so we can freeze that motion. If you want to start practicing this stuff on your own, grab any camera out there and just use it in manual mode. Don't use any of the fancy sports mode, landscape mode, 
people mode, birthday party mode, whatever modes they have, those are just dummy modes that set these three settings for you, film speed, shutter speed, and aperture. Instead, set the camera to manual and just start playing with those three things and get pictures looking exactly like you want. If you don't have access to a camera, that has a manual mode, you could still use your iPhone or any other camera phone. For the iPhone, I like to use an app called Manual App, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes that lets you control shutter speed and ISO speed. Unfortunately, you can't control aperture because the iPhone has a fixed aperture. Don't really have much control over that. You can find the show notes for this week's episode at healthyhacker.com slash 19. And if you have any questions about this photography stuff, feel free to send me an email or send me a voicemail and I can respond to it on the show at healthyhacker.com slash voicemail.